the two priests mentioned in verse 3 of our reading are described later in verse 12 of chapter 2 as wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. And then verses 13 to 17 of chapter 2 go on to describe how these two priests abused their position for personal gain. It's a disaster. But the story of Hannah, which fills chapter 1 of the book, is a story of how, even in such a dire situation, one person who remains faithful to God can make a huge difference. And that chapter 1 tells us three things about Hannah. First of all, in verses 1 to 8, we read about her pain. Childlessness in any age is a terrible experience for any couple who long for children. And I don't think I'm being sexist if I say that the pain falls particularly hard on women. Now, what made that situation especially hard for women in Old Testament times was that the ability to have children was regarded as a sign of God's approval. Any woman who couldn't have children was publicly criticized, talked about, harassed, teased, and made to feel worthless. It was believed that she'd sinned against God and that this was her punishment. In fact, it wasn't unknown for a man to kill a wife who was not able to have children because her shame was passed to him. Now, for all his faults, Hannah's husband wasn't at all like this. Verse 3 tells us that Elkanah and his two wives made a yearly visit to Shiloh. That's about a a 20-mile ride to worship the Lord. And when the whole culture was heading downhill spiritually, Elkanah swam against the tide of apathy and took his family to worship God. He could have said... Well, no one else is going. It's too far to travel. And anyway, the preacher's rubbish. And it's a timely reminder to us that simple faithfulness in public worship of God in a largely godless culture like our own can send out a powerful message. Now, I hope for... Most of us, most of the time, public worship can be an encouragement and a blessing. But for Hannah, sharing in public worship brought no comfort because of the spiteful behavior of Elkanah's other wife, Penina. But there's more to it than that. Because verses 5 and 6 repeat a very hard point about the root of Hannah's problem. Twice in those verses we read, the Lord had closed her womb. And the phrase is a reminder that it's God who's behind the circumstances of life, good 
and bad. We don't really want to believe this. We'd rather blame our problems on Satan or on another person or on circumstances. But it's God who allows good and bad alike to come into our lives. And our faith should be like that of Job, who, although afflicted with suffering, said in Job chapter 2, verse 10, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14 puts the point well. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Now notice, this is not the same as the belief of Hannah's time that childlessness was caused by sin. It's quite different. In John chapter 9 verse 2, Jesus' disciples asked him about a man who was born blind. Who sinned? This man or his parents? Neither, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And this exchange between Jesus and his disciples gives us a clue why such situations occur in our lives. Not to torment us or to lead us into bitterness or resentment, although we often do turn them into that. No, but to draw us to God so as to lead us to a solution that we might otherwise never have found. Now, if I'm honest, I don't much like the idea of God using negative experiences to draw me closer to himself. I'd much prefer that he stick to positive experiences. But then who am I to tell God how to deal with me? So verses 1 to 8 tell us about Hannah's pain. Then in verses 9 to 16, we see her prayer. As Christians, of course, we believe in prayer. But in practice, prayer may not always be our natural first response. Consider some of the other ways beside prayer Hannah might have chosen to deal with her problem. She could have become angry at God and blamed him for closing her womb. God, this isn't fair. Panina has provoked me, but I haven't provoked her. I've come to your tabernacle every year. I've offered sacrifices. Why haven't you given me a son? See if I serve you anymore. Or she could have blamed everyone else. Elkanah, If you'd not married the other woman, I wouldn't be having these problems. Or Panina gets me so stressed out, it's all her fault. Or Hannah could have made up a story about Panina being unfaithful and spread the lie all over town, hoping that Elkanah would divorce Panina. Hannah could have issued an ultimatum. Take your pick, Elkanah. One of us has to go. Or she could have drowned in self-pity and become a bitter, disagreeable woman. But she didn't. She brought her pain to God in prayer. 
And what a remarkable prayer it was. She could have prayed, Lord, give me a son so that I can be happy. Or Lord, give me a son so that my husband will be happy. Or Lord, give me a son to shut up that other woman. Just give me a son. But that's not how she prayed. Her vow in verse 11, is that if she is given a son, he will be dedicated to the Lord for his entire life. He will serve in the temple as a priest and will become what's called a Nazarite, a child set aside for the Lord's service. You see, Hannah sought to pray, not just in line with her own desires, but also in line with God's purpose. Her example reminds us that the purpose of prayer isn't to solve all our problems so that we can live happy, trouble-free, self-centered lives. No. The purpose of prayer is to get God's will done, to glorify him. What might that mean? In practice, well, let me suggest two examples. If we're out of work, it's perfectly legitimate to pray for a suitable job. But maybe we need to be praying that if we do get that job, we will seek to serve God in that place of work and dedicate some money from each paycheck to the work of God. Or if we're sick and praying for recovery. Maybe we need also to be praying that if recovery does come, we will use our health and energy to serve God in new ways. Verses 1 to 16 tell us about Hannah's pain and her prayer. Then in verses 17 to 28, we see her peace. Well, of course, you say, we see her peace. She got what she wanted. Well, yes, she did. But notice that verse 18 comes before her son was even conceived. And it reminds us again that the process of prayer is a process of aligning ourselves with the will of God, rather than twisting God's will to suit us. Your will be done, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, not carry out my will. Hannah's peace came about because through prayer she'd entrusted her plight to God's gracious handling. And when that gracious handling resulted in the birth of the longed-for son, verses 24 to 28 tell us that Hannah kept her promise to the Lord made back in verse 11. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to appreciate the depth of sacrifice that this course of action required on Hannah's part. She was giving up this child that she'd longed for so deeply. 
This was so much more than praying to God, give me my heart's desire and I'll drop a few extra coins in next Sunday's offering. Many of us make promises to God only to forget them as time passes. Maybe this morning, if our walk with God is going through rocky times, if we feel we've strayed far away from God, maybe we need to ponder if there are promises made to God, maybe at our baptism, maybe at our confirmation, maybe in other circumstances, promises which we have over time forgotten. The story of Hannah and the birth of Samuel is important because Samuel's leadership was going to help lift the nation of Israel out of lawlessness and immorality. Samuel led Israel in its first great revival. He drove the invading Philistines back into their own territory. He re-established the worship of the one God, Jehovah. And he set up the kingdom of Israel and anointed its first king. But Samuel's greatness reflects the greatness of his mother Hannah. She experienced great pain, but she committed that pain to God in fervent prayer. Through prayer, she found peace. And when her prayer was answered, she went on in chapter 2 to shower God with praise. And I believe that in her experience, we can see a spiritual pattern which could apply to any of us. And I say that fully recognizing that our prayers are not always answered to our satisfaction in the way that Hannah's prayer was. To suggest otherwise would be to risk portraying God as some sort of genie who exists to make our wishes come true. Reality, for many of us, is reflected by this testimony from a soldier in the American Civil War over 150 years ago. The soldier wrote, I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I wonder if you can relate to some aspects of that testimony. If so, I hope you can also relate to its closing statements. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I'd hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. 
I am among all people most richly blessed. Hannah is a woman who, in her relationship with God, showed great honesty, obedience, and thankfulness. So as I close, I'd ask each of us to consider how we might complete these three statements. First statement. I want to be be honest with God about... I want to be obedient to God in. And I want to be thankful to God for. Amen.